to see you here. All right. Good morning, church family. Last week, we began working through Romans chapter number two, and we saw how just because, just because a person was of Jewish descent or had an outward appearance of morality did not mean that they did not need a Savior. Uh, we saw how nobody was good enough to make it to heaven on their own merits. God will not judge Jew or Gentile based on their appearance or their circumstances or their cultural or religious advantages. We also saw that just because God has not yet passed judgment doesn't mean that he won't. In fact, God is currently extending kindness and restraint and patience so that people have a chance to turn to him. But then we concluded last week with verse number 11, which says that there is no favoritism with God. We saw how God judges impartially. He does not judge based on what a person says they believe, but on the condition of their heart, which is made evident by the lifestyle that they live. Now, a careful observer, though, might raise an objection. If God judges fairly, why did he only give his law to the Jewish people? That hardly seems fair. If the law was supposed to point their need to a Savior, if the law was supposed to promise and foretell of the coming Messiah, why did he only give the law to those people? Well, Paul anticipates this question, and he's going to unpack that for us, beginning in verse number 12. But before we jump into that, let's read the entire chapter, and then we'll begin working through verses 12 through 14. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter number 2. We'll pick it up in verse number 12, and we will work through verse number 24 this morning. Uh, but before we do that, let's read the entire chapter. Romans chapter number 2, beginning in verse number 1. The Bible says, Therefore, every one of you who judges is without excuse. For when you judge another, you condemn yourself, since you, the judge, do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is based on the truth. Do you think any one of you who judges those who do such things yet do the same that you will escape God's judgment? Or do you despise the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Because of your hardened and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath when God's, ju when God's righteous judgment is revealed." He will repay each one according to his works. Eternal life to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality. But wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. There will be affliction and distress for every human being who does evil. First to the Jew and also to the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who does what is good. First to the Jew and also to the Greek. For there is no favoritism with God. For all who sin without the law will also perish without the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For the hearers of the law are not righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. So, when Gentiles, who do not by nature have the law, do what the law demands... They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the works of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse them 
or even excuse them on the day when God judges what people have kept secret according to my gospel through Christ Jesus. Now, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are superior, being instructed from the law, and if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the ignorant, a teacher of the immature, having the embodiment of knowledge and truth in the law, you then who teach another, don't you teach yourself? You who preach, you must not steal. Do you steal? You who say you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Circumcision benefits you if you observe the law, but if you are a lawbreaker, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if an uncircumcised man keeps the law's requirements, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? A man who is physically uncircumcised but who keeps the law will judge you who are a lawbreaker in spite of having the letter of the law and circumcision. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart. By the Spirit, not the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your Spirit would anoint the preaching of your word this morning. And Lord, even though the Apostle Paul is going to ask some convicting questions towards his fellow Israelites who may be relying on their religion their outward conformity to the law, on their position as God's people to be what saves them instead of their Messiah, Lord, I pray that your word would still be a proclamation of good news, healing, and liberty, because it's the hard reality that all of us need a Savior. It doesn't matter if a person seems to be good enough to make it on their own, Lord, as we're going to see Paul lay out for us, none of us are good enough to make it on our own. So as we continue to work through Romans chapter number two, I pray that if there is anyone listening to this message who thinks that they are good enough based on the way they live or that they are good enough to make it to heaven on their own or that they can stand on their own merits, Lord, that Romans chapter number two would serve to show them that none of us can do that. May it be like Jesus when he called out Nicodemus and told him, you must be born again. Just because you're a teacher of the law does not negate the reality that you must be born again. And so, Father, I pray that you would open our minds to understand and contemplate these wondrous things from your word. I pray that your word would give us life and strength this morning. And for the person who is not in Christ, that does not have eternal life, that your word would be the catalyst to cause them to come to new life in you this morning. And I pray that we as your church would delight in your instruction and that it would be planted in the good soil of open hearts so that we could be like righteous trees planted by flowing streams bearing fruit to your glory. We ask this in your name. Amen. Now, Paul's point in this chapter and in the last chapter, it's a deep one. Are you ready? All of us are sinners. (laughs) To help us understand this first point this morning, Paul is going to help us understand how possessing the law was not enough. Now again, Paul is addressing a church, that is true. He is addressing his fellow Israelites in the church, but he's helping his fellow Israelites understand that 
you guys, you fellow Israelites, did not get saved differently than the Gentiles in the same church did. Just because you have the law does not give you a, a, a leg up, does not mean you can avoid God's judgment, does not mean you do not need a Savior. And so he's helping them understand in verses 12 through 16 that possessing the law was not enough. Now, for the first time in the book of Romans, Paul introduces the law. Now, this, isn't, this certainly isn't the last time he's going to bring it up. It's going to be an important part of the conversation as we work through Romans and as we consider the righteousness of God. And based on what Paul is saying here, is the law is not adequate to save. It only reveals our need to be saved. But the Mosaic law was considered to be a key difference between the Jews and the Gentiles, and a person's adherence to it was what many would ultimately depend on to experience the righteousness of God. But Paul clearly states in verses 12 and 13 that a person who sins without the law, so a Gentile who doesn't know the law, will still perish because of their sin. And those who do sin who have the law, they will actually be judged by the law. So simply hearing the law does not make a person righteous. Paul goes on to tell us that one must perfectly do the law. One must fulfill the law, which of course Paul will later state nobody can do if they're going to experience the righteousness of God. So the first way that Paul helps us understand that God's judgment is impartial as we saw in verse 11, there is no favoritism with God. The first way Paul helps us understand this is that we all sin, with or without the law. We sin, and we deserve judgment. What Paul is also helping us understand is that the judgment of God will not be partial to those who, have, who had access to more truth. God's judgment will be according to the truth that they do have. The law of Moses will not be brought in to condemn those who sinned who had no access to the law of Moses. God will only use the law of Moses to judge those who had access to it. So Paul also wants his fellow Jewish people to understand that not hearing the law of Moses will not condemn anyone. Somebody's not going to be condemned because they never heard the law. And hearing the law, just because you hear the law of Moses, does not mean you're okay, you're good to go. Paul wants them to understand that just because they had access to the moral law of God or possessed it and they knew it did not mean that they would be saved when they stood before God in the final judgment. The question will not be how much you have or know, but rather, based on how much you did have, how did you live? How did you respond in your heart to the truth that you did have? Was there faith in Christ that led to a changed life? Now, I want to give the same clarification this week that I did last week. Paul is not throwing out salvation by grace. The righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus and Jesus alone. And as we saw last week, saving faith will produce perseverance in good works. The point Paul is driving home is simply that having or not having access to the law is not the basis of judgment on the last day. Fulfilling the law is, if that were to be somehow possible for us as fallen humans. And as we'll see in chapter 3, verse 20, For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law. No one is going to be justified before God for the way they obeyed the law. Because, Paul will say, the knowledge of sin comes through the law. What Paul is saying that, this is God's standard. None of us meet it. 
This is God's standard of holiness. This is God's standard of perfection. This is God's standard of righteousness. And the only way to experience righteousness of God is to meet that standard. But unfortunately, none of us can meet that standard. So the purpose of the law is to reveal you don't meet God's standard. None of us do. And as Paul is addressing his fellow Israelites in the church at Rome, he wants them to understand this because they would have been tempted to think, even though they were believers, that they were still better than the Gentiles. And so he's helping them understand that, look, guys, before you came to know Christ, the ground was level. None of us can meet God's standard. The point of the law is to show you that you cannot meet God's standard. Now, what about those who never hear or see God's standard? What about those who don't have the law? What Paul is going to help us understand, though, is that even though a Gentile might not have the law, they still have a law. Look at verse number 14. Verses 14 through 16, Paul says, So when the Gentiles, who do not by nature have the law, because they were not of Jewish descent, they did not have the moral law of God, he said, When the Gentiles, who do not by nature have the law, do what the law demands, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the works of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Their competing thoughts either accuse or even excuse them on the day when God judges what people have kept secret according to my gospel through Jesus Christ. So the answer to the question about God's fairness in judgment is that we all have a law. Pastor John Piper said, the evidence for this is that the moral behavior of all kinds of people all over the world shows that they have a sense of many true moral obligations, and their consciences confirm this with the conflicting self-defenses or self-accusations that it constantly brings up. Every one of us have a conscience. Because we were created in the image of God, God has given every human being that is born a conscience. This is God's moral law written on their hearts. Now, obviously, a conscience can become callous after it is repeatedly ignored. Paul told his, uh, his, his mentee, his protege, this in 1 Timothy 4, 2. In chapter, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, he says, Now the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons, through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. So a conscience is part of God's general revelation that he gave to us to help us to know right from wrong, but a conscience can become seared. The image here in 1 Timothy is a skin that has become callous because it has been burned with a hot branding iron. Some translations will even say seared like a hot branding iron. The skin becomes permanently calloused and dead. Paul is helping us understand that sin can do that to a conscience. When you repeatedly ignore it, it becomes seared. It becomes like dead skin that is calloused. It doesn't produce growth anymore. So just because a person says they don't feel bad about a certain sin doesn't mean it isn't right. But it's interesting how people intrinsically know right from wrong. As John Piper alluded to in his quote, you can go anywhere in the world and people are going to have a sense of morality. You can go anywhere in the world, and when there's any type of systematized law, most of the time murder is going to be bad. <laughs> there's going to be a, a basis of this is right and this is wrong. That's because God has given humanity a conscience. One of my jobs as a parent is to help my children know what's right from what's wrong. 
But it amazes me how often they know what they did was wrong before I have to tell them. That's because they have a conscience. One of our kids has a very, very tender conscience. This particular child gets easily grieved over anything that seems remotely inappropriate. He'll ask me all the time, Dad, why do people say bad words? And like, I want to explain it to him without justifying it to him. I'm like, well, son, they say bad words because there's bad things. Can I say bad words? No. (laughs) But he has such a tender conscience, and whenever he's confronted with something that's inappropriate, like it grieves his spirit to the point he'll just start crying over it. We have another child who will often sneak away and try to watch The Simpsons, even though we have repeatedly told them no. Pray for that one. I'm worried about her conscience. I mean, even though this kid knows that's not allowed, she'll still try to do it. Yellow, yellow cartoon characters, it's exciting. <laughs> what Paul's trying to help us understand, though, is that even though we Gentiles, and I think that's all of us here today, even we, though we Gentiles did not have the law given to us the same way the Israelite people did when Paul was writing this, we still have a law. God gave us a conscience a law to awaken us to the moral knowledge of God. Just like we saw in Romans chapter 1, how creation points to a creator, so does a person's conscience. God gave humanity a conscience so that we would know there is a God and he has a standard. There is a God, and because there is a God, there is right and there is wrong. Now, we already saw this alluded to in chapter number 1. If you go back to chapter number 1 and look at verse 32, Paul said, although they know God's just sentence, that those who practice these things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. How does a person know God's just sentence if they don't have the law? How do they know what they did was wrong? God gave them a conscience. And having a conscience is not enough to justify a person, but the point is not to justify you. The point is to reveal you need a Savior. There is a God And because there is a God, there is right and there is wrong. Because there is a creator, he has the moral authority. He has the right to say, this is right, this is wrong. This is bad and this is good. And the point that Paul is stressing here is that every human being is guilty before God. None of us live up to the demands of our own conscience. We can't even live up to the demands of our own conscience. And what Paul is helping his fellow Israelites understand is that You can't even live up to your own conscience, much less God's standard of holiness. All of us are without excuse before God because God's judgment is fair. And the reason Paul is bringing this up when he's talking to the Israelite people is that he wants them to know that they are no better off because they have heard the law. You can't project yourself as as better because you had the law. It's as if he's telling them, If having the law and sometimes obeying it was enough, then the Gentiles are in the same boat as you, fellow Jews, because God gave them a law too, and they sometimes obey it. (laughs) But he says there's coming a day when God is going to expose the heart of every person. Look at verse 16 of chapter 2. On the day when God judges what people have kept secret according to my gospel through Christ Jesus, God will judge the hearts of every human, Jewish or Gentile, And he tells his fellow Israelites that God will cut right through all the religious observance to see what was real. And he will judge every human heart through his son, Jesus. The only way to be safe is through the gospel. 
That's what he means by saying he's going to judge what people have kept secret. He's going to judge their hearts according to the gospel, according to my gospel, he says, through Christ Jesus. The only way to stand in God's judgment is to place your faith and trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul continues to demonstrate this as he moves into verse 17, which is where we get our second point this morning, and that is teaching the law is not enough. Let's read verses 17 through 24. Now, before we read it, I want to point out, you probably already noticed this when we read it earlier, but verse 17 all the way through the first half of 21 is one long rhetorical question. It's one big sentence. Pay attention to the grammar as we work through this. This is one of Paul's uh, run-on sentences, which is he is well known for. So let's read it in verse 17. He says, now if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are superior being instructed from the law, and if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the ignorant, a teacher of the immature, having the embodiment of knowledge and truth in the law, you then who teach another, don't you teach yourself? He's asking this rhetorical question to cut right to the heart of their outward appearance, of their outward observance. He goes on to say, you who preach you must not steal, do you steal? You who say you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Paul is asking this as a rhetorical question to encourage his fellow readers to be honest with themselves. Now, the obvious answer to this question is yes, but the question forces them to consider their own hearts. Paul uses the word now at the beginning of verse 17 to call their attention to their privileges before he shows them how those privileges might actually enhance their condemnation. As we're going to see in chapter number 3, They had an advantage. They had the law of God. However, it's only going to be to their condemnation. He is accusing them of teaching everybody but themselves. You then who teach these things, don't you you teach yourselves? You're promoting yourself as this guide. You're promoting yourself as, well, if you really want to follow God, you got to listen to me because I'm a Jew. I have the law. We're, we're, We're God's chosen people. All of that is true. They did have the law. They are God's chosen people, but he's saying what you're missing is the heart of the matter. What he's doing here in Romans chapter 2 is very similar to what Jesus did in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. He's helping them realize that they are lost. Just because you profess to follow the law, just because you're of Jewish descent, does not mean you do not need Jesus. He's extending the commands beyond beyond outward obedience down to inward motives of the heart. Paul is saying and asking, you say don't steal, but how often do you take things that don't belong to you? He's saying don't commit adultery, but you do. Jesus said in Matthew 5, the very lust in your heart condemns you. He's saying you detest idols, but you rob temples. Now, they weren't putting on ski masks and breaking in Ocean's Eleven style to the temple at night, right? What he's doing is he's, he, he connects robbing the temple with idolatry to demonstrate that idol worship is more than just the act of bowing down to a statue. 
because the Jewish people were very strict about this. Well, we don't bow down to any idols. There's no idol worship. But he's showing them that idol worship is more than just the physical act of bowing down to an idol. In pagan culture, they would worship their pagan idols thinking that that idol would bring them prosperity. That's why they had so many gods. They had the God of fertility. They had the God of material blessing. There's all these gods. They had the sun God that would bless their crops. They had all these gods that they would worship so they could get something in return. Their worship, they thought, would bring them prosperity. And what Paul is bringing out is that they worship in the temple for the very same reason. They crave money and power and respect and they the Jewish religious leaders, we see Jesus rebuking them all throughout the Gospels for this very thing. They would crave money and power and respect, and they used their religion to get it. They may not worship the idol, but they use worship in the temple. They were using God for what they thought they could get out of it, and he says that's robbing God. They, this is using religion to get things from God instead of getting more God. They were using it to build their platform. And he said, you're robbing God, guys. It may not be idolatry in the way you think about it, but you're robbing the temple because you're worshiping to get what you can get. You see, these questions Paul asks cut right through the outward and pierce straight to the heart. He says, God sees your heart, guys. God sees the heart. He demonstrates to his fellow Israelites that they need a Savior just like the Gentiles. He then tells them that all of this dishonors God. They could brag about having the law all they wanted, but their hearts were like graves. Whitewashed tombs, Jesus said. In verses 23 and 24, he says, You boast in the law. Do you dishonor God by breaking the law? It's a rhetorical question. The obvious answer is yeah. For these people to put their dependence in the outward appearance of morality. We don't need a savior because we're good enough. We don't need a savior because we're of Jewish descent. Paul says you're dishonoring God. And then in verse 24, he drops the hammer. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. The fact that they try to present themselves as the religious elite, but the reality that their hearts and lifestyles were actually contrary to what they say causes the name of God to be blasphemed among the very people that they think they're better than. He's telling them, guys, the Gentiles that we just called out in Romans chapter number one see right through your religious image. Warren Wiersbe says on this passage, instead of glorifying God among the Gentiles, which is what they were called to do. When you read the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was supposed to be a kingdom of priests for the entire world. They were supposed to represent God to all the pagan nations. Warren Wiersbe said, instead of glorifying God among the Gentiles, the Jews were dishonoring God. And Paul quoted Isaiah 52 verse 5 to prove his point. The pagan Gentiles had daily contact with the Jews in business and other activities, and they were not fooled by the Jews' devotion to the law. The very law that the Jews claimed to obey indicted them, he said. Paul wants his fellow Israelites to know that just because they have the law or just because they can even teach the law, 
does not mean that they do not need a Savior. God can see right through the outward veneer. And as convicting as that would have been for them, it's actually good news. God's word to those who may think they're good enough to get to heaven on their own is not condemnation, it's an invitation. It's, it's hard, yes. It sounds convicting, yes. Because we, we, when, when Paul asks these, and now he's asking these questions to his fellow Israelite people to help them understand their need for a Savior, but these questions cause all of us to squirm a little bit, don't they? But it's not condemnation, it's an invitation. He's telling them it will be condemnation. <laughs> there is coming a day when if you don't accept your need for a Savior, there will be judgment. So it's not condemnation right now, but it might be eventually. We saw that last week. Just because you're not experiencing God's wrath now doesn't mean you won't. You're actually storing it up for yourself. But right now what Paul is actually doing is he's sending them an invitation. God gave his son so that they could have a relationship with him. And if you're here today and you think, man, I think as I'm considering heaven and what happens after I die, I think I'm good enough to make it to heaven on my own. I think my good will outweigh my bad. God gave his son so that you could have a relationship with him because as we saw last week, None of us can tip those scales. None of us are good enough to make it to heaven on our own. The righteousness of God does not come through the law. It does not come through being good. It comes through Jesus. Jesus came and fulfilled the law. What Paul is helping us understand is you have to fulfill the law to make it on your own. None of us can do that, but as he's going to show us later in the book of Romans, Jesus actually did that for us. Jesus came and fulfilled the law. Jesus came and met God's standards. You don't have to try and earn your way to heaven. Jesus earned it for you. And so Paul asks these questions because he wants them to realize you need Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him, in Jesus, we might Become the righteousness of God in him. As we saw last week in 1 John, Jesus came and lived a perfect life. He came to take away our sin, and he could do that because he had no sin. When a person places their faith in Jesus, God accepts the sacrifice of Jesus on their behalf and gives them the righteousness of Jesus. It's saying, I was never good enough to make it on my own, but I trust that Jesus was for me. The righteousness of God comes through the gospel of Jesus. And so if you're here today and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, let me encourage you. Consider the question Paul asked his fellow Jewish people thousands of years ago. Consider those questions. None of us are really good enough to make it on our own. None of us have a leg to stand on. None of us can meet God's standard of righteousness, but Jesus came and met the standard for us. And when you place your faith and trust in him, you are then given the righteousness of God and can experience new life in him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would grant us, according to the riches of your glory, to be strengthened with power in our inner being through Christ Jesus and that Christ may dwell in our hearts. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning who does not know you, that they would consider their relationship with Jesus, that they would consider what they are trusting in. If there's somebody here today and they are tr trusting in the fact that they think they might be good enough, that their good will outweigh their bad, Lord, I pray that your spirit would pierce 
their hearts and help them to realize none of us are good enough. We all need a Savior. Those of us that are, those of us that were just lost in wild and unrepentant sin, and those that are trusting in their outward morality, all of us are in need of a Savior. Lord, I pray for the people here today that are wrestling with that, that you would show them their need for you. We ask this in your name.